when you've been running a hell-bound race and you know that that's where you would have ended up apart from the Lord, how can you say anything but Jesus is my life? Hallelujah. You're going to have to give me a minute. God is so good. So we're going to talk about that grace this morning. And we're going to do so like we've been doing. We've been following the life of David. And we've been looking at the Psalms. And we've been talking about a life of worship. And we're going to look at a, a horrible, painful event in David's life, a time in his life when he falls deep into sin and deception and um, when the Lord comes and meets him in that place with his grace and what's David's response and what's our response. And so I'm not going to read the Samuel story. I'll retell that as a part of the text or as a part of the sermon this morning, but I'm going to read the psalm. Psalm is Psalm 51. And would you turn there with me? And I'm going to read the first 17 verses of Psalm 51. And before I read those, would you join me in prayer? Lord, I I pray that in the same way that you peel back the curtain for David this morning and that you meet him with love and mercy, even as you expose him, that you would do the same for us. That the covering of your love and the presence of your love would be so strong that we would be willing to see things in us that we would rather otherwise not see. And so come Holy Spirit and speak, reveal Jesus Christ, and lead us to turn away from our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Psalm 51 is titled, For the Director of Music, a Psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight, so that you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desire faithfulness in the inner being. You teach me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. 
Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You don't delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. The word of God. I don't know how many of you have heard of um, TED Talks. You heard of TED Talks? Well, I've been quite taken lately with some some um, storytelling of somebody that I have seen on TED Talks. Her name is Dr. Brene Brown. And... Um, She's a researcher sociologist out of the University of Houston, Houston, and she writes about shame, vulnerability, courage, and uh, about blame. And so she's got this little three-minute video clip that my father-in-law actually sent me, well, I don't know, a month or six weeks ago. And, um, and I want to tell you a story that Brene Brown tells in there about blame. She says, she begins by saying, hi, my name's Brene, and I'm a blamer. And uh, let me tell you how I know I'm a blamer. She said, this happened a little while ago. Um, I was getting my second cup of coffee ready in the morning, and I, <laughs> I'm seeing the knowing glances of people who have seen this. So I'm, I'm, getting, <laughs> I'm getting my second cup of coffee ready, and I dropped, I slipped and I dropped my coffee, and within a half a second of dropping it, I went, oh, Steve! Steve's her husband. She said, let me tell you how I blamed Steve in a half a second. The night before, he said, hey, hon, I'm going out to play water polo. And she said, well, be back by 10 o'clock because you know I can't sleep without you. And so we agreed. And Steve came home at 1030, not 10. And so I couldn't sleep and I was up late. And therefore, I had to have a second cup of coffee. And because I was having a second cup of coffee and not a first, that when I dropped it, it was Steve's fault. (laughs) Now, um, you laugh. We laugh. But honestly, that laugh is a knowing laugh because we all do this. We, we blame. It, it, truthfully, we can say it that blaming is as old as Adam, right? Well, Lord, the woman you put here with me, she offered me some of the... And, and we know this from watching our children. They're born into blame. We don't have to teach them how to blame. We ask what happened. The dog, the cat, somebody else, right? You never did it, right, Lucas? It wasn't you. It was Levi. (laughs) Peter says the same thing. But you know what? As we grow up into adulthood, um, we don't stop blaming. We just get better at it. We get better at making excuses and hiding. And you know what Dr. Brene Brown says research tells us about blame? Blame is the discharge of pain and discomfort. Blame is the discharge of pain and discomfort. So what are we running from? What is painful and what is uncomfortable? 
What makes us feel vulnerable? Truth. Truth in the inward being. Knowing and seeing the truth, the full truth, and nothing but the truth about Dave as a sinner is really scary. It's vulnerable feeling. It's nakedness of soul. And so we do like Adam and Eve. They covered themselves with leaves because they knew themselves to be naked. And we cover ourselves with excuses. We cover ourselves with things so much so that we don't have to look at what's uncomfortable. We don't want to see it. But the problem is that the thing that we cover ourselves with actually leads to death. It prevents life. It acts as a wall that, we get, that gets built up between us and God. And so if that thing that we cover ourselves with doesn't get taken down, then we're on a road to death. And that's the road that we meet David on this morning. When we open the text in Samuel, it says, it was springtime and all the other kings went off to war and David didn't go off to war. He stayed home where he shouldn't have been. And staying home, he's up on the top of his palace looking around and he sees a woman bathing and he inquires about her and he sends someone to go get her and he takes her to himself and he sleeps with her. This is called rape. It's not just adultery. There are power dynamics going on here. She could not say no to King David. He raped her. And then he gets word from her that she's expecting. And so he does not acknowledge what he's done. He takes another step forward and in, and he tries to cover it up. Because the knowledge of what he's done is too scary. He doesn't want to see it, doesn't want to acknowledge it. And so he calls for Uriah, the woman's husband, to, become, to come back from war. And he sends him home. He inquires from him, and then he sends him home, thinking that he'll sleep with his wife. And this whole thing will just get swept underneath the rug, and nobody will know the difference. And he doesn't go. Uriah doesn't go, because he's more righteous than David in this moment. He actually sleeps outside the palace door because how could he go enjoy being with his wife when the rest of the army's off fighting? And David finds out that it's not working and so it gets another layer of thickness added to it. David basically says, get him drunk. Get him drunk and then he won't know what he's doing and then he'll go home. His defenses will be down and he'll go home and sleep with his wife and all this will go away. But it's not going away because, again, Uriah is more righteous. And so David finds out it's not working. And so he puts a death order in Uriah's hands and sends it back to the front and tells his commander, put Uriah in harm's way and have him killed. And Uriah gets killed. And Bathsheba gets taken in and becomes David's wife. And nobody knows, and David thinks he's got it all buried away, dealt with, pushed away. Except for one thing. Except for the God who the Bible says searches hearts, knows everything, and from whom nothing can be hidden. 
except that that God loves David too much to let him carry on. Because if David carries on down this road, he's dead. He's, he's on a road, he's on a path of deception, self-deception. He thinks he's deceiving God. He's not, he's not paying attention to God at this point. But he's so deceived that he's raped a woman, murdered her husband, taken that woman to be his wife, and there's no word of it being wrong. There's no acknowledgement. He's on a path toward death. Any time that sin starts to grow up in us and it's given a foothold of any sort, it leads to death. It doesn't start as death. James says it starts as a seed. But he says sin, when it conceives with what our will, gives birth to death. And that's why Paul says, put sin to death. Run from it. So here's David with sin growing up full bore in him. He's on a, he's on a trajectory away from God. And he is so blinded to it that he's got nothing to do about it. Because here's the thing about sin. It is deceiving. When it grows up in us, when we give it room, we stop being able to see it. Everybody else around us can see it. They can smell it. We can't see it. It blinds. And again, the God who knows everything and who loves David, loves him, doesn't want to see him on this path. And so he does the thing that we need done for us and to us when we're stuck. To, to borrow a word that Ann and I use with our kids, he nakifies David. He comes and he exposes him. He makes him vulnerable in a way that David wasn't going to make himself vulnerable. So he sends the prophet Nathan. And Nathan tells a story about a shepherd with one little lamb. And a rich man in town who had a, 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 someone come and visit him. And instead of using one of his own animals, he kills the little shepherd's only sheep. And David gets outraged. And God says, through Nathan, God says, that's you. That's what you did. And in one fall swoop, all the layers are gone. All the, the things that David erected around his heart to cover up and to not see what he'd done and who he'd become, they're all gone. They're peeled back. This is the grace of God. This is the grace. He doesn't come to indict him and point the finger and condemn him. If you listen to God's words after this, the tone of his voice is sad. He says to David, why? Why did you do this? I gave you this. I gave you that. I gave you the kingdoms of Israel. I gave you other wives. And if you still needed more, I would have given it to you. Why? Can you hear God's heart breaking? Why? This is the vulnerability of God. That He has such deep love for us that He would hurt over our sin. So it's all pulled back. And David seeing himself as he really is. And David says, I've sinned against the Lord. 
and immediately comes rushing in the grace that was already there. Nathan says, God's taken your sin away. Now listen, I don't think God took a sin away because David said, I'm sorry or I sinned. That's not the way the gospel works. God took his sin away first. God came to him with the announcement of, this is what you've done and it's been taken away. This is the gospel that God comes to us and he exposes us and he shows us who we are and what we've become and what we've let grown up in us. He exposes, he makes us vulnerable in a way that we can't point a finger or blame. He opens our eyes for us to see who we are and he does it in such a way that His arms, we can see his arms open wide. He's not pointing a finger. The Bible says Jesus didn't come to condemn. God doesn't want to condemn the world. We're already condemned. Jesus came to save the world. He does it arms open wide. Waiting. The Bible says God's a waiting father. The parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. The father waits He waits with arms wide open. The only thing that separates him, us from him, is whether we will acknowledge sin or not. Whether we'll be honest with God. And so David turns to the Lord in Psalm 51, and he lays out in the the context of God's grace and of the gospel he he lays out a model prayer for how we respond to the love of God that comes to us first and that exposes us. And I want to read you what somebody um, says about prayer that this struck me this week. Prayer is the place to come out of hiding. Prayer is not the place to be good. Prayer is the place to be honest. Prayer is the place to come out of hiding. It's not the place to be or pretend to be good. Prayer is the place to be honest. It's the love of God that makes the, sets the context for David's honest response to the Lord. I believe that David was overwhelmed by the love of God. God could have just, with one one little, kicked him off the throne. Done. He could have allowed him to carry on in his self-deception so thickly that um, he just went off the rails and never even knew when he left. God could have done so many things other than come and show him what was going on. And I believe that David had such a a long history with God, such a knowledge of who God was, that he knew immediately. The moment Nathan said, it's you, the love of God washed over him. That God would come and tell him. And that God would come and tell him and immediately say, your sins are forgiven. There's consequences We'll talk about those next week. But your sins are forgiven. 
And I believe it's that love that prompts this prayer. And so I want to just look at this prayer, this model prayer, briefly. And I want us to notice four things that David asks for and three things that David offers. Because what David asks for and what David offers are exactly the things that God would have us ask for, that God desires to give, and that God loves to receive from us. So what does he ask for? Mercy and forgiveness. And notice this. He says, verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. That's that word chesed that we've been looking at over and over again. God's relentless, unfailing, chasing covenant love. God, because of who you are, not because of what I, who I am, not because of what I've done, not because I have anything to offer you, because of who you are, forgive me. Forgive me. Have mercy. And he's asking for the very thing that God loves to give. Right? Mercy. God is in the business of mercy. Forgiveness. David says, wash me. Cleanse me. Give me a pure heart. Sin isn't just something that we do. Sin does something to us. It, it changes us. We change in the act of sinning. We refuse to forgive and bitterness grows up in our soul and begins to shape us. We refuse to turn away from sexual sin or sexual temptation and lust begins to grow up within us and change our perception of people. And we view them as objects rather than human beings created in the image of God. We set our hearts to chase money in an unhealthy way. We make decisions that are based out of greed and something grows up within our soul that chokes out life. And on and on. Sin dirties us. It changes us when we engage in it. And so just like when our kids get real dirty in the sandbox and they want to come in for supper, you know, we got to hose them down. Because we don't want them tramping that stuff all over. And besides, it's really uncomfortable. It chafes and it, and it doesn't feel good. And nobody likes to be muddy for a prolonged period of time. So David comes to God and he says, I'm, I'm dirty. What I've done has left me dirty. Not just my body, but it's stained my soul. God, clean me. And God says, by the blood of the Lamb, By the blood of the Lamb. I'm in the business of cleaning, washing, purifying. I'm holy, pure, and I want to make you pure. I want you to share in my purity. That's God's response. David says, number three, don't take your spirit from me. Don't cast me away. Don't do it. Because he knows that God is pure and holy and won't abide with sin. And the God who won't abide with sin and yet loves us sinners, loves us, wants fellowship, 
wants us to be and feel close to him. Created us for that. The God who created Adam and breathed breath into his lungs. Wants us to know closeness with him. So David's asking for what God wants to give. The God who breathes on us anew and says, receive my spirit. Fourth thing David says to the Lord is, Lord, renew my joy. Renew my joy. When you are caught in sin, it steals joy. He also says, let the bones you've crushed rejoice. There's no life. We waste away on the inside when we get stuck in sin of any kind. David has experienced that. So, so even though he's denied it at the level of his mind, he's been experiencing it. And maybe he can turn around after God's exposed him. Maybe he can turn around and look back and say, that's why I was wasting away. That's why I didn't have any joy. That's why my life was going this way for the last so many months. That's why my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Psalm 32, another one of his confessions. And so he says, God, restore joy to me. God's the most joyful person that there is. God is the source of all joy. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. Jesus is a man of joy. God desires our lives to be filled with joy. If you are a conductor conducting music, you long to hear the symphony being played. It's music to your ears. The symphony that God wants played out in his church is joy. His body, his bride, his beloved joy. So David's asking God for the thing God wants to give. He's going to get it. He's going to get joy. If your joy is drained away, it may be because sin is growing up, blocking fellowship with God. When the heart is clean and pure and we're walking in the light, 1 John 1, thank you for reading that earlier, Kathy. There's joy. There's lightness of spirit. So David says, "Return, restore joy to me. And then he offers God three things. One, he offers a clear acknowledgement of sin and sinfulness against I know my transgressions my sin is always before me against you and you only have I sinned and what's done what's evil in your right in your sight so that you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge God doesn't require that we come to him with solutions He doesn't require that we come to him with a goodness and a righteousness of our own. He just requires honesty. That's it. Acknowledgement. He he has all the mercy to give. He's got the forgiveness. He's got the righteousness. It's Jesus. He gives it to us. What's our part? Stop denying. Stop blaming. Stop not looking at ourselves and pointing to everyone else. And just acknowledge, God, I'm, I'm not who you made me to be. I'm living in ways that are 
unbelieving. I've let control grow up within me. I have used my tongue in ways that have torn people down. I have not loved you with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind and all my strength. Just honesty. God asks for honesty and David gives it. When you're honest with God, there's a release and then there's the gift With forgiveness, again, comes lightness and restoration. And God has what we need to love him and to be faithful to him. So David offers honesty or honest acknowledgement. And then he offers a broken and a contrite heart. We we, um, love Isaiah 61, 1 to 3 here. Talks about Jesus being anointed to bind up broken hearts. And so if Jesus binds up broken hearts, how is it that David offering a broken heart is something that's pleasing to God? The broken heart that Jesus binds up is the one that's been wounded through sin and hurtful things that maybe others have done to to us and maybe even ways we've participated. But it's ways that our heart has been hurt. The broken heart that God loves accepts is the one that's sorry for sin so we've all had somebody offer us an apology where we heard the words but we could tell the heart wasn't engaged it was like they knew the right thing to do it was a mental acknowledgement and it didn't touch us right well i hear you but like there's still something between us because obviously your heart's not engaged this is a broken heart god i'm like i'm I can feel how this may feel for you. I'm sorry. Like a broken heart is allowing oneself to get a sense of how my sin has affected God, has affected other people, has affected me, and it's, it's deep sorrow. It's godly sorrow. Paul says worldly sorrow leads to death, but godly sorrow brings life. So that's the broken heart that David offers and that God calls us to offer too. What's the last thing that David offers? He offers God that he, he offers him his tongue. He says, I'll sing of your righteousness. I'll teach sinners your ways after you restore me. That's not a small thing. I'm not going to hide. I'll talk about you. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And David's saying, God, you restore me. You forgive me. You restore me. And I will not be ashamed. I will sing of your righteousness. We saw the singing, dancing king last week, didn't we? I'll sing of your righteousness. My tongue will declare your praise. I'll teach sinners. I'll lead other people. In other words... How how do you think he's going to lead sinners? He's going to be honest. How do we get led by him? He was honest enough to, to include or allow to be included his own story in Scripture. I'll be vulnerable enough to say, I'm a sinner. 
to let my story be told, because my story is in the end of the story. My story is God's story, ultimately. My story is caught up with the God who redeems. The God who meets me on the way to death and says, Your sins are forgiven. They're taken away. And so David says, Use me, God. And God says, Absolutely. And he uses David to speak to us even this morning. So here's where I want to end. God is speaking. He is speaking to some of us about his love. He's just washing over us with his love again. Maybe you thought you had to get yourself cleaned up and presentable, or maybe you thought you had to attain a certain level of something before you could come to God. Maybe you didn't realize that his love was so safe that you didn't have to hide anything. That he takes shame away. And so you can acknowledge anything. Because his love washes and covers it. And so he's just washing you with his love this morning. Maybe you're sitting here this morning. And you're realizing. I've not been honest with myself. I, I have wandered into sin. I've been impure. I've been hiding. I have, you fill in the blank. It doesn't have to be as sort of off the charts as rape, adultery, murder to count as hiding from God, blaming, putting up something that would keep God out. So we're just going to create a couple of minutes of space before we sing a song of response just to respond to God. Pay attention to how God's working in your heart right now. And um, let's go to God in prayer. I'm going to ask Laurel to just come and play the keys for a minute. And we're going we're to allow the Holy Spirit to speak and to minister. And we're going to respond to God. I'll lead us into that prayer and then I'll leave several minutes for silence. Lord, wash over us with both your love and your truth. I pray that you would not allow one of us to leave this place without both of those washings, Lord. That your grace covers everything. And that your grace makes it safe enough for us to acknowledge sin. And I pray, Lord, that wherever sin exists... You would convict and you would cause us to run from it.